You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you for joining me. It's been a little while since our last episode. I've been busy recording new interviews and editing them all together. This is the first of several new installments that will be coming out over the next few weeks. To get on topic, though, it's not every day that you get the opportunity to speak with a full-time artist who also openly discusses their experiences with serious mental illness. I recently met a man named David Parkin. David is an artist who lives in the United Kingdom and who works on many different projects related to mental health. He has produced and directed theatrical performances, created musicals, concept albums, and even written books that explore various facets of mental illness. As you might be able to imagine, David has bipolar disorder. He experienced his first major depressive episode when he was 19, but didn't experience a full manic episode until he was 38 years old. Remember that, interestingly, if a person experiences even just one manic episode, they meet the diagnostic criteria for bipolar type 1. For some bipolar people, mood episodes occur rarely, with periods of months or even years of stability in between. As I always like to say, it's not the old laughing one minute, crying the next stereotype when it comes to bipolar disorder. Anyhow, in this installment of Bipolar Recorder, we talk about how David came to receive his diagnosis, got sectioned in a psychiatric ward for four months, and then we move on to discuss his latest works of art and how he is using them as a form of self-care and healing. This conversation is pretty light, at least relative to some of our other episodes lately, but there is a bit of discussion about a suicide attempt that left David badly injured. It's nothing graphic, we just have some general discussion about that subject matter, and it might be a little uncomfortable for some people, so I just wanted to provide that content warning. Now, let's listen to David's story. I'm joined today by David Parkin, who is an author, theater maker, musician, and installation artist from the UK. So excited to have you on today. Uh, He is a man who lives with bipolar disorder, and we're here to talk all about him living with that condition and, of course, the art and creative projects that he works on. So, David, let's just turn it over to you for a second. What is your formal diagnosis? How old were you when you were diagnosed? And who are you as a person? Okay. 
So I'm not 100% sure what my formal diagnosis is. I think it's bipolar 2. Maybe you can help me. Okay. I think you're a lot more clued on to this. So like generally on a day-to-day level, I kind of, I'm kind of, I'm fairly good. I'm fairly smooth um, with little bits of depression and anxiety, sleeping sometimes. But then like, there might come every five years, I'll have a big, a big sort of, um, you know, I've only been up once. So I've had three or four sort of big clinical depressions and I've been up once. Does that sound like bipolar too? Well, it, I'm not a doctor, but um, it could describe bipolar disorder for sure. Um, bipolar type two is marked by hypomania, but not full manic episodes. Have you ever had a full manic episode before? Yeah, I think so. I so think that so, so that would most likely be bipolar type one if you've been diagnosed as having had a full manic episode. For bipolar type one, the presence of a full manic episode is what characterizes that type of bipolar disorder. But anyhow, with bipolar type two, there is major depression and hypomania, but not full mania. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Not maybe sure I'm if that one. helps. <laughs> maybe I'm too. I don't know. I'm bipolar. I've gone up and down, but just every three, few years or something. Yeah, that's what it's like for me too. Uh, my last manic episode was about, so I have bipolar type one and my last manic episode was in about uh, 2015. I had a major depressive episode that was really bad um, in about 2018 or 2017. And since then I've been relatively stable. You know, I've had periods of hypomania, periods of mild depression. But does that sound relatable to you? Is that yeah, pretty much yeah, what that your experience sounds like, is? That then? sounds like my, you sound like me, sort of. So how old were you uh, when you first started thinking, you know, maybe I have bipolar or when did you receive well, a diagnosis? I've, uh, okay. So in my life, uh, up until uh, 38, I'd only, I'd only had really big depressive episodes, maybe about three or four. Um, yeah, so I was I was uh, diagnosed as a depressive, I guess, and I was on uh, antidepressants for that. But yeah, in um, 2015, I went I went up dramatically, and and yeah, and ended up getting sections. Do you want to hear about the kind of how that happened? Oh, for sure. Walk me through it. I, I think these stories are always so interesting. Okay. Well, um, yeah, as I said, I've only had big downs. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird because I'm an artist. I feel like I need to go through my big downs and say how I kind of, I kind of logged them as an artist and then go into this. So 19, I, I, I had a big down relationship entered. I was a university and I did a lot of, you know, I smoked a lot of weed and I did a lot of, you know, I make, mucked around with, uh, with, with, with drugs, not, nothing, nothing heavy, but, you know, e-speed, LSD, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously I found, yeah, so it was a combination of relationship ending, my first relationship. I've, I don't know if I've ever been that in love. Well, you know, infatuated. 
post-relationship i was just going to say relationship stress can be a huge trigger for a lot of people oh yeah it's my it's my number one it's my big biggie um yeah so i had a big depressive episode and then at university i i was doing theater studies and i ended up making a show about it as you do a one-man show okay um so long ago the all cultural and you're an American. So all cultural reference for its title will be lost. It was called driving Skoda in the fast lane. Skodas <laughs> back then were shit cars. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So anyway, it was a one man show and that kind of got me into an arts organization and I had, you know, I had many happy years with them. And then in 2009, I went, I had a big down again. Um, and I sort of, by that, I, I, when I recovered from that, I I um, wrote a clinical depression concept album mm-hmm. called Good Friday, available on all good streaming sites. Yeah, I checked I it out, actually. Man. Ah, you like it? Yeah, yeah, I listened to it. It's very interesting. It's uh, so concept album about depression and about working through that. It incorporates a lot of dark comedy into it. I noticed it it reminded me a little bit of Monty Python. I was hearing like some Monty Python influence, maybe a little bit of Beatles influence even. Mm. Uh, really interesting piece of work. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the funny stuff. Um, I guess like I do try to weave humor f- through it. So I get in the first song, Crawley, uh, where I go. Crawley, by the way, is a really awful town in England. It's like the place to go to top yourself. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I went there almost in a kind of grim acceptance. I li- My parents lived in East Grinstead, which is a lovely little place, and I could have gone to Tunbridge Wells, which is nice, but I thought, no, I'm going to fucking Crawley. And, um, yeah, there's a line in there. So, I, I uh, yeah, I bought some... I bought a knife, and I bought some whiskey. And, yeah, so the line is... I'm shopping in Sainsbury's and I'm buying a knife and some whiskey and I realise my shopping looks crazy. So I know what I'll do. I'll buy a copy of Look Who's Talking mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And like, and my favourite funny line in that is um, in Killing Spree, which is a funny song. Yeah. Uh, my dreams are, this is trying to describe when I just gone on to Talapram. Uh, my dreams are a joke. My life is pathetic. I'm on so many drugs. My cock feels prosthetic. <laughs> yeah, I laughed at that line too. Yeah, I was, I was like, yeah. I, I was like, I've been there. I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that was actually a song about bad side effects from medication. Um, had you been on a lot of medication before, or was uh, uh, what? What did you say the name of it was? Citalopram. This was a antidepressant when I was deemed to be a depressive. I hadn't read really, by then. I'd not really been on many on many drugs. I'd only been on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the 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 more drugs didn't really start to later. Anyway, well, yeah. So uh, 2009, then uh, 2010, where I had a major depressive episode. And jumped off a fucking roof. Wow. There's, 
Yeah. You can't say he jumped off a roof without putting fucking in the middle, I find. Of course not. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I got I got a, a brain injury mm. from that. And um, I guess, I, yeah, I'm just going through everything. I'll get to where we're going. But the weird thing was about that experience was when I came, when I came around in hospital, I was, uh, I'm doing bracket fingers with bracket fingers, speech mark fingers. I was suffering from euphoria. So I was this, mm. I had a five minute memory, but I was this giggling wreck who didn't know what was going on. And I can remember why it was there. I just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I broke 11 all loads of bones and oh my gosh but for Wait, some re- yeah s- s- just to backtrack for one second was this part of like an attempt on your life was it like an accident that had happened while you were manic no 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 this is so 2010 this is before i've gone manic at all okay so this is uh yeah school school university 2009 2010 both big depression episodes. Um, yeah, this was, I I can't remember anything. Mm. Um, probably because I might have landed on my head. But yeah, I, she, I was in a, I was in a private mental health institute and I was only there for like two weeks or something. I can't remember anything about going in, really. Uh, but yeah, I assume I jumped off the roof willingly. Mm. Um yeah, so so I kind of uh, talking about artistically, I ended up writing a memoir about that, and actually uh, recovering from that brain injury because I was suffering from euphoria, I kind of felt new. You know, it was actually a beautiful experience, um, like learning how to swim again when you're kind of old enough to appreciate it is a is a beautiful thing um but we can we can come back to those later how how did i get my first diagnosis of, of bipolar returning to the initial question in 2015 which is about seven years ago now it is seven years ago yeah i i so a relationship end, ended again you might be noticing a, a theme here and um, I was drinking a lot at the time. So a relationship ended. And yeah, she said, you're drinking too much. Why don't you try a month off the booze? And I went, right. Well. And I did a month off the booze. Well, yeah. And then at some point along that line, uh, I decided to come off my drugs. Now, by that point, I had been put on a little bit of Seroquel, quetiapine. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe like a doctor somewhere along the line had probably gone, might be a bit bipolar. I can't remember. But I was on antidepressants and quetiapine, which is an antipsychotic, sort of used as mood stabilizer as well. So I came off of all them. Um... And yeah, my mood kind of started becoming, you know, I started becoming elevated. 
so I started, what, how it happened was I started writing rules for how, how I was going to cope with the non-alcohol, mm-hmm. how I was going to deal with it. But these rules kind of grew and grew about how I was going to live my life. And, you know, I read them back and some of them, they're quite good. You know, walking everywhere, be nice to the homeless. Yeah. And I started living by these rules kind of religiously. Um, and, And then, yeah, things become, I became quite, I don't know, I was just more. I was just me, but more. Mm-hmm. And um, somewhere along the line in there, I wasn't sleeping and I sort of took an overdose. I, it wasn't an overdose. It was only to help me to sleep. I was like, yeah, I'll shove down whatever, 600 Seroquel, Quetiapin. That would do the job. My flatmate, my housemate came back and found me. Fortunately, he left his daughter downstairs, found me naked with the with the bath running oh no and i was in hospital for only three or four days and that i don't know and that was a kind of i don't really remember that much i just remember being off my off my face a bit mm-hmm. and i i stumbled across this faith room that's what i remember and this faith room seeming so sort of odd and magical to me um but yeah and then i and then i went back to kind of living in my house at this point in the conversation david speaks about a children's book and an accompanying musical that he was working on in the midst of a manic episode. I was working on at the time, so I've written a kid's book, The Nose That Nobody Picked, available on Amazon, anyway. And um, I was turning it into a musical. And I started, you know, I was working and I was doing the finishing, retouching up the book. And I started like working a lot, really hard on it. And um, yeah, and then we did this, we were recording the musical and I kind of approached it like, now his name's Wilson, the leader of the Beach Boys. You're probably too young. Brian Wilson. What was his name? Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson. I kind of approach it like Brian Wilson, this recording of a kid's musical. You know, Brian Wilson sort of famously filled up a studio with sand. So I was like, right, we've got to do it in real time. (laughs) And, you know, I want you to walk across the room. I was walk across the room in without shoes. And, you know, I was being extremely sort of erratic. Just firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Yeah, you like, you know, and when I was doing that, the the cast were there, and the 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 on stage musician was being, he was really going with it. He was like, yeah, yeah, dude, I'll, I'll I don't know, do what you want me to. But the the main the girl who was playing the main character was just like, I don't know what 
what's going on? I'm going home. You're really pissing wow. me off. Wow. You know, so so is that. And then I started handing out the rules. Um, and my at some point my parents came up to 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 Leicester, which is where I was living, because I was being weird and I was getting them. And we were printing all these rules and they were sort of the rules about not drinking. The rules, well, they started off with not drinking, but they gradually sort of built and built. So <laughs> then they came to there were rules about when I was going to take the kids' musical, the nose that nobody picked, to the West End. There were rules about that going, you know, it's uh, we'll never, we will never do merchandise and, and you know, and okay. And if it gets made in a, into a move, we have like Pixar to do it. really Um, planning ahead there yeah yeah i has you know the delusions of grandeur were already in Mm -hmm. you know and i i i was convinced it was an ag i mean it is a little bit but i was convinced it was an agnostic parable that was gonna save the world so you know through um, through the children's book and yeah. the the musical based around it, it yeah. this was going to be a paradigm shift for the world around us. Yeah, exactly. You know, so taxi drivers would drive me home and um, say, "Oh, how are you? How, how's it going? You know, how's your day been, mate?" I go, "It's great. I'm writing an agnostic parable that's going to change the world." You know. <laughs> David continues on to discuss dangerous situations he got into despite having such grandiose, noble intentions. And and I was putting, you know, these, these are the flashpoints. I was putting myself in a position where I was more vulnerable. And so there's two points that kind of involved the homeless, really. Um, first up, like, I, I was out one night and I saw these guys being a dick to this homeless guy. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, there were three or four of them, quite large, quite pissed. Um, for the listeners, I'm five foot five and look like a, a 45 ginger cherub, maybe. <laughs> and... But I'd learned, for some reason, I'd been to self-defense and I'd learned this one thing, which is you just put your hand out in front of you with a flat palm and you put it on their solar plexus and just say, stay back. And these guys would be now horrible to this homeless person. I, and I kind of stood up to them quite vehemently. And I was like a, hair, a hair's breadth away from getting a kicking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that, you know, Put your I, hand I would out. never did. I kind of did my hand to his solar plex and this guy kind of went, oh, he just kind of looked really freaked out by it. So, yeah, I narrowly avoided the kicking. Pretty wild stuff, right? But it doesn't end there. One night there was this homeless guy and he was busking 
and he wasn't getting any anything. And I felt sorry for him. So I said, sorry, mate, I'm going to I'm going to get you some money tonight. So I, you know, I, um, I wouldn't call myself a poet, but I've written poetry. Some of it's short and funny. So I was this homeless guy. I was doing this poetry in the street to passersby and and I got a bit of cash, you know, um, maybe a tenner together. And then, but then I said, tell you what, mate, should I get you some, should we get some food? And I went to the Chinese and, and of course I left my, my bag with my laptop, my coat, with my phone, with this guy. Oh no. And I don't blame him because I put him in that position. You know, I wasn't thinking straight. Mm-hmm. I put him in a position where it was like, well, you know, I've got to take this, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you, and, you'd had your stuff stolen because you were kind of on this mission of benevolence. Yeah. And yeah, like you were saying, kind of this grand delusion of grandeur mm. uh, going around and changing the world, trying to change your local community trying to improve the society around you. I mean, these are very, very high level kinds of initiatives to just start out on one day and go out and decide, well, I'm going to create these rules to stop drinking. I'm going to create these rules for my new play and my new book, and I'm going to help the homeless. And you've just got all of these different things going at the same time. That sounds pretty manic. Yeah, it was. And you see, the thing was, no one had, I'd never been diagnosed before then. I'd never really shown any signs of hypermania. I'm not quite sure why it all came together then, but also obviously my friends and my family didn't, had no idea, you know, like Dave's acting a bit weird, you know? Yeah. Um, And so there was this day, so I was doing a reading of the nose that nobody picked. And I was convinced it was going to be kind of new, new age, cutting, cutting edge, hip version. So I was going to walk to the art center. And along the way, I would pop into secondhand shops and get my costume as I went, all <laughs> the while getting audience to follow me like the Pied Piper and, uh, you know, and not entering the building until it was my time to go on. And I had this idea of like for a kid's show, you know, for a kid's reading, I had this idea of like blowing smoke filled bubbles with my vape, just walking in. (laughs) Yeah. That's age appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So a member of the art center, my parents and my friends, I remember they they were in this room and they were all sort of going, okay, well, we'll get this art centre guy to come along. And he, he came along and he listened to me. And then he went away. And then I phoned the art centre for some reason. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's not happening today. Oh, wow. Because the artist is unwell. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, so I, I was hugely annoyed by this. And... Um, so I was with my parents for a meal and I phoned my friend. 
I said, I'm going to write something on Facebook about this. How dare they turn away my cutting edge experimental arts children's Mm -hmm. book reading. And she phoned my parents and kind of told them that. And I was just, I remember being venomous, like talking to my parents who were lovely and like, they're lovely people. And, you know, and I, I remember saying that book is my intellectual property and I can do whatever I want, you know, but saying fucking every other word. <laughs> that fucking book is my fucking intellectual property. I can do what the fuck I want with it. You know, I remember shouting at my dad this and I am looking a bit scared. And then I had a scuffle with my dad, mm-hmm. which is, you know, he's, he's an old guy. He's a, you know, he's a lovely, sweet old guy. And, and then I was convinced I wanted to go home with a bottle of wine and drink it as I went. And mm-hmm. I said, we'll get you a taxi. But of course the taxi didn't, didn't go home. Mm-hmm. It went to the, to the local hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And then that night I, you know, I am, I met, I, I had to wait for ages and I then eventually met the, I don't know, in England, in America, but this is what happens in England. You're met by two psychiatrists and a social worker mm-hmm. who interview you and say, yes, okay, well, you need to be sectioned mm-hmm. or you at least need to go to the hospital. Yeah, no, they can section you. Yeah. And the big and, thing and what is, so it just because the terminology is a little bit different in the United uh-huh. States, but what does being sectioned mean exactly? Is that like an involuntary psych hold? Yeah. Okay. Got it. So the shortest section, the normal section is 20, a month, 24 days wow. or something. Yeah. And of course, being, being on a bipolar high, they say to you, well, do you want to come in voluntary, mm-hmm. you know? And you go, no, I'm fucking fine. Mm-hmm. And then because you're so confident that you're fine and you're firing on all cylinders, they have to then section you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the theory being, if you show quick recovery, they can let you out before the 24 days. But the idea is, yeah, there's, there's you can be, I think it's a month, you're sectioned for a month. Mm-hmm. But I ended up in there for four months. Wow. Why so long? I refused my medication for a long time. And I just think I was on a, a manic, such a manic experience. It took a long time for me to go, "Mm, hang on. Yeah, maybe, you know, they were telling me I was bipolar. I'm I'm a depressive. I've been depressed. I'm fine. I'm mentally positive. I don't know. And then, I mean, the big change for me is when the inevitable dip came. Mm -hmm. I was a bit like, oh, okay. 
They might have, but they might have a point, actually. Yeah, those depressive yeah. episodes are like a wake-up call because when you're manic, you know, you, you can be feeling pretty good and then the depression creeps back in and you're like, oh shit, like now yeah. I've got to, like this is a thing. At least that's my own perspective on it. I um had a hypomanic episode a few months ago and I was like, you know, I'm feeling good. I should be down on my medication blah 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 and then a week later i just hit this wall of depression and i was like okay this is the worst like Mm. i do need to continue taking my meds at least for now so i can relate yeah i mean it was weird for me because as i said i'd never had and i think in my life i've probably had elevated periods it's probably been a part of what it has but nothing as much as this nothing so as far as I was aware, I've been I'd have been depressed, but I'd never I wasn't bipolar because I'd never it was so yeah. I mean, that's the thing about my my big experiences, as I said, a three or four when I get depressed mm-hmm. clinically, it's like clinical. It's like I'm sure you've had other pe- other people on here, but it's it's heavy. Mm-hmm. It's not like ever from minute to minute, and everything is telling you you want to die. You know, yeah. I mean, I haven't had one of those for a long time, and um, and hopefully at this rate, I I won't have any more i'm a lot more sort of clued in with myself um i mean yeah as i was in there for four months but like one of the one of the good things was i was properly i was properly diagnosed you know they said you've got bipolar I said no i haven't mm-hmm. <laughs> and so on and then obviously they took me off the antidepressants I was on and just put me on the antipsychotic mood stabilizers. When I'd crashed, I was like, I think I need some anti. Well, from what I, from what I know for bipolar antidepressants aren't necessarily the thing. Well, uh, you're not supposed to only take antidepressants if you have bipolar because antidepressants on their own can be a trigger for mania in many cases that was it so i was saying i'm really depressed i think i need some antidepressants antidepressants and they were like no sorry we can't give you that because that might trigger another manic episode Mm -hmm. i was like give me the antidepressants then Mm -hmm. that will trigger another manic episode i much prefer that to this give you know load me up um but yeah so that is quite the experience. Four months being sectioned is that I, I I can't even imagine being on a psych hold for that long. That must have been tough. So how have these experiences translated over into your artistic work that you that you have done or that you're currently working on? Yeah. So um, as I said, the first one was a, a kids project, and then I I did the Clinical Depression concept album, Good Friday, available on all the streaming sites. 
or uh, davidparking.org, check it out. Um, uh, and then I had the brain injury and I wrote the memoir about brain injury and depression. Uh-huh. I'm still searching for a publisher. It's a great piece of work. <laughs> um, have but have yes. you ever considered self-publishing it? What I... I self-published uh, Nose Book, the nose that nobody picked, so I could sell it at um, at the gigs, you know, and I did quite well with that. But with mm. this, I don't know. I've got a kind of hankering to be properly published. Yeah, you want to so do I'm, it through the traditional channels this yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, I get that. We shift gears a bit here and begin talking about an installation art project that David is currently showing in the UK. If you're not familiar, installation art is basically when an artist sets up a large piece or exhibit in an entire gallery or other big location. The audience is allowed to walk through the exhibition and view and interact with different art pieces, creating an immersive experience. In David's case, his installation also incorporates aspects of performance art, as he himself is one of the works on display. The concept behind all of this is really quite interesting. Let's listen to David describe it in his own words. So the last thing I've been working on is called is um, an installation called David Parkin's Delusions of Grandeur. Um, so that's an installation. It's quite it's weird for me to do an installation. Um, the company I the arts company I used to be in used to do them, and it just kind of happened that this guy there was this festival happening which was very cool. And he said, hey, we've got this room in a gallery. Do you want to do something? And I'm more performative, or I was, but I was having, I was just recovering from coming out of my four-month stay at the NHS's pleasure. And um, and uh, I said, so it was a gallery, and I just said, I'll do an installation. Where it all started was... So when I was in there, I was put in seclusion, which solitary confinement. The, mm-hmm. the when the you white were sectioned, room. yeah, yeah. But seclusion, you know, if you kick off, mm-hmm. there's a room that they put you in that's no stimuli. Do you have this in America? You do. Surely. I I've never personally been in one, but I know that they exist. Yeah. So I I this place out it. it it was an outrage to me. I think it's is inhumane. Yeah, it's fucked so, up because if you're manic and you're you have no stimulus, it's like your brain is nothing but stimulus, and you need something to like focus on to kind of like yeah. bring it back down. Putting someone into a static void like that is not going to be helpful. No. Well, so I mean, it's interesting what I did. So in there, you, in there, at least in England, they take everything off you, your belt, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. And um, 
but they do give you this weird cardboard toilet thing where you can have a shit if you want to <laughs> and squat down. And I, I discovered in my pocket a pen lid. Mm-hmm. So with the there were all these little dints, dips, and stuff with this. So with this cardboard toilet thing, I ended up playing a game I devised myself called Potty Pen Lid Netball, and I was like, you know, through this this pen lid, and which compartment I got in, dip I got it in, I got different points. So I ended up cooling myself down mm-hmm. with something very low like a game of tetris yeah like low stress kind of just this is what i'm doing yeah. just gonna focus on this and yeah. it's kind of a self-soothing sort of activity yeah which wasn't available to me in there mm-hmm. you know i asked the nurse can i have a book and he the nurse in question knew there was no way I was going to try and eat this book or cut myself with paper cuts or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he didn't give me a book anyway. So I, I thought it was inhumane. I can see if someone is having a psychotic, a psychotic episode, how that might work. But for me, this one size fits all, it didn't work. So I drew up these plans. I had this mad mad doggy notebook and i drew up these plans for this alternative seclusion which has like cloud clouds on the wall nature sounds playing it's very nice and this there's kids books and self-help and books and religious texts and play-doh do you have play-doh in america of course yeah yeah, because I figured you can't top yourself with Play-Doh. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the original impetus behind the installation was like, I'll tell you what, I'll build this room, this alternative uh, seclusion. I'll build it myself. Okay. So that is in the installation. There's a there's a lot of text boards that take you through moments on the ward, and there's um, there's you can listen to interviews with my friends and family about supporting me, and there's another corner anyway. But what is nice is the installation, David Parkins, Delusions of Grandeur, um, is on a Bethlehem Museum of the Mind. I mean. In England at the moment. It's mm-hmm. on till the 22nd of July. If anyone's listening in England, you know, Bethlehem Museum of the Mind, which is in Beckenham. Now, Bethlehem Museum of the Mind is the old Bedlam. Bedlam in England, it's kind of twofold. The word means Bedlam, madness, craziness. The reason why we use that word in that context is because one of the original asylums in England, asylum, you know, mental health unit, loony bin, whatever, uh-huh. was the bedlam. So that's why we say bedlam in that in that phrase. So it's on, I don't know if it's on the exact site, but it's where the original site was. Okay. There. 
Interesting. The old Bedlam, Bethlehem Museum of the Mind. Now, Bethlehem Museum of the Mind is still in Bethlehem Hospital, which is a a working mental health unit. Mm. Um, And what I found really, I've been hearing stories, what I found really nice is that service users or inpatients or, you know, Mm -hmm. inmates, patients, um, have been visiting my Mm. seclusion and kind of, you know, hanging out there and chilling out. That's so cool. That is very cool. That is very cool. I'm very proud of that. I, that's amazing. So this this is kind of like you're like, look, if I was ever in this situation again, this is how I would want it to be. And now you yeah. have people who are in that situation and they're drawn to it. Like, hey, this is actually pretty cool. Was that one of the uh, main goals of this artistic endeavor? What what were your other objectives with it? Um, uh, well, in a way, sectioning, I feel sectioning what do you call it in america well in america so i so i'm from the state of virginia and in virginia there's voluntary involuntary and then there's a civil commitment which is what i was on was a civil commitment which is similar to what you described i was brought to a uh, psychiatric hospital actually by police And then I had to do the intake thing with the psychiatrists and social workers. And then I actually had to meet with a lawyer and a judge. So it, the process is different and it varies from state to state. Um, They, they don't call it sectioning usually over here though. Um, But yeah, you can certainly be uh, involuntarily hospitalized if you're deemed to be a danger to yourself or others, you know. That was that was the key thing with me, though. I was on a bipolar high and I did look into it and it says, are you a danger to yourself and others? Mm -hmm. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm not a fucking danger to anyone. Yeah, I'm 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 really happy. What are you talking about? Um. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, I feel that it feels like one of the last sort of taboos a little bit, especially in England. Like I've, I've, I've done it. Uh, the, the exhibition has been on twice. First time I did it, you know, I had a great response. And there, there were people who I knew who then told me, oh, yeah, I've kind of, I've done, I've been there, you know, or my brother's been there. And, I didn't know that at all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it feels like a bit of a taboo and people don't really talk about it. The exhibition is an unflinching view. Uh, you can listen to songs I wrote. I, I'm, a pian- I'm a piano player, um, but I only had a guitar, so I kind of learned it a little bit. You can listen to songs I wrote in there. Most of the songs are shit. In fairness, but some some are good. Hey, we're um, all our own worst critic, you know. <laughs> well, I have played one or two of them live since, and they work. They're okay. You can also, when I did crash, I ended up writing "Stream of Consciousness" in a big black book, and you mm-hmm. can listen to that, which is someone kind of looking for meaning, you know. 
looking for a reason to carry on really so just kind of free form stream of consciousness writing that you would use as a coping strategy when you were depressed yeah i did yeah um but i guess the main thing one of the well uh yeah one of the main things was i did these text boards that run which are only a pain a page long and they talk about weird moments on the ward Mm-hmm. from falling in love, falling madly in love with a fellow inmate right. to getting punched to escaping to the champagne bar. <laughs> and um, and that, that really connected with people. So you have a really diverse background. I, I mean, in theater, in music, as an author, when you have new ideas for projects, is there a way that you select a particular medium or does it just happen very organically? That's interesting because I am a bit of a jack of all trades. Um, the medium normally suggests itself. So um, the album, I'd, I, when I recovered, so the Clinical Depression Concept album, Good Friday, um, as I recovered, I got a piano and a friend showed me chords. And basically that's all the album is. It's three chords with me. I'm a good lyricist. And I can vaguely structure a song. So in that case, there was no, it was, well, I should do an album about it. Uh, You know, I felt myself drawn to it. Um, And then the memoir about recovery, the memoir about brain injury and depression. You know, it was when you live through something like that, the fact that you've, after jumping off a fucking roof, have to put that fucking in there, to jumping off a fucking roof, to come round giggling and finding that, to me, that was such a weird plot twist. Such a beautiful, it was a beautiful thing to live through. And so that, oh, that should be a book, of course, because it's a story. Um, But actually the exhibition, uh, for once, the kind of someone came to me with, yeah, the idea of doing something in an art gallery and that's where it came from. But I think, I think, um, yeah. Uh, I'm often, I know what I want to make. Mm-hmm. It comes like, you know, oh, I should do an album about this. It. So I'm very rarely kind of um, wondering what to do. Yeah, it just yeah. kind of happens spontaneously. Yeah. Gotcha. Very cool. Very interesting. One other thing I wanted to ask you is why do you think the use of humor in your work is important? Because you got you got to laugh. I don't know. It's just, um, I mean, that's the thing about bipolar and me. 
when it happened. I've only still only had one manic episode, mm-hmm. but I'm a reasonably funny chap. So when bipolar hit, I was, I was, you know, you like yourself, but more. Um, but humor in the work, it's just how it's how I exist. You you have to be able, you have to be able to laugh, surely, because because if you didn't, you'd cry or some shit like that. But it's true. You've got to. I mean, the, I mean, just okay. So one, it's impossible not to look back on this kind of fondly and joke about it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now it's another cultural reference. It might not work. So, Blackadder. Do you have Blackadder in America? Okay, I had to look this one up since I'm American and apparently didn't fully understand the British cultural reference. Blackadder was a very popular British television series from the 1980s. Just clarifying that for anyone else who missed the memo. Let's continue. It's a great, everyone in England knows it. So it's one of them is set in the fall in World War One, And Blackadder, who's a slithering kind of cheating, cowardly bastard, is trying to get out of going over the top. So he pretends to be mad. The idea being you're mad, so you don't have to go. And how he does this is he puts a pair of underpants on his head and sticks two pencils up his nose. So, and in England, it's a it's a it's a group cultural memory. Okay, you know we we all remember this, or people of a certain age. Um, so I went into a ward meeting. Do you have ward meetings in America? A ward meeting. Um, it, would that be like a group therapy session of some kind? No, or? it's when you meet, kind of like. Your psychiatrist, uh, training uh, the nurse. You meet. Oh, the- oh no, man! We we t- <laughs> at the hospital I was at. They didn't do that. They just threw me in there and were like, "Okay, figure it out. We'll see you. We'll see you around. We'll be keeping an eye on you, but we're not going to tell you who we are." And I was like, "All right, well, that's pretty creepy, but I guess that's where we're at." But uh, anyway, so award meeting. So when you were sectioned, they actually introduced you to the staff? Well, every two weeks, you were introduced to stuff. You saw your doctor, your head psychiatrist, who decided what drugs to put you on, mm-hmm. about every two weeks. And it was award meeting. So everyone was in there. My parents were in there. You have your main doctor, your head nurse. Everywhere. So they're there to appraise whether you are sane enough or not to be let out into the real world. And, um, and I went to this board meeting. Uh, I was being satirical. It was, you know, it was, a, so I went to this ward meeting referencing Blackadder with a pair of underpants and two pencils stuck up my nose <laughs> and my underpants on my head. And, 
yeah, I thought I was being hilarious and smart and witty. And um, in fairness, like the the majority of the staff weren't white English people. They were from different race. So very few people got it. <laughs> and uh, oh man. So uh so you had this you had this joke and it, it just didn't land very well, it sounds no. like. And I wasn't released. Oh no. After. I was res- I was withheld for a while longer. How much longer after that did they keep you in there? I can't remember to be honest. Oh man, that's Maybe too it was- funny. It is funny because like if I I know that I have a, a kind of like dark, sarcastic sense of humor. And I, I have found also in my own life that it doesn't tend to translate very well uh, when you're talking with a psychiatrist. You know, you got you to gotta be on your best behavior yeah. for those moments. Like, you know, I was still flying, so I'd go into ward meetings and read them poetry mm-hmm. about why I should be released. Mm. And... What was their response to that? But no, but they would, you know, I felt- just... They're like, great, now we have to listen to this again. Yeah. You know, medical types, are they've got a very limited appreciation of the arts. I got to say, it's always nice when you can find uh, someone uh, who who does have appreciation for the arts and is very educated in their field. Yeah. I mean, for, for us in England, I mean, you know, this happened... Five years ago, seven years ago, no, seven years ago. And so, like, I phoned my psychiatrist. My psychiatrist talks to me three times, four times a year. Okay. You know, and it's just a kind of, what's going on? Do you need more drugs or whatever? Yeah, like, do you need a med adjustment? Have you been psychotic? Just, yeah. like, have you thought about killing yourself? Just kind of those standard questions. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that sounds familiar to me, too. I, I check in with my own psychiatrist about once every six to eight weeks these days. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we just go down a quick list. I, I would say our appointments are usually about 15 minutes long. Yeah. I think psychiatrists... Especially well in England, you know, I see that they're they're just the medicators, mm-hmm. really. Um, and certainly, especially where you're under section, the people who know you and understand you are, if you're in there for four fucking months, um, are the nurses. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree. And yeah, I met a lot of nice nurses. Me too. Yeah. Nurses, I got to tell you, those men and women working as nurses, they they are so underappreciated and um, they they do often kind of act as that like middle ground between talking to a scary doctor or talking to someone who's a bit more down to earth, maybe a bit less jaded, a little more compassionate. At least that's what I've found. Yeah, um, I mean, you know. I mean, I've had two experiences. So I had the sectioning, and then I, after jumping off a fucking roof, um, I, I was in hospital for about three months. And you know, it's the nurses who you really get to know. Yep. A doctor may be able to see you and go, 
oh, you need this or this or whatever. But it, a nurse can tell how many sugars you have in your tea, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, yeah, I think maybe they should be given a little bit more power when it comes to grading your madness. Yeah. I don't know. That- yeah. I, I wonder how the... um the breakdown of that is like how much the nurse's notes or input really gets taken into consideration by the rest of the medical team and, and things like that. But I know um, when I was in the hospital, uh, I was only hospitalized for about five days following a uh, severe manic episode in 2015. So uh, yeah, so nowhere near four months. Um, five days, come on. Five days, I know, five days. <laughs> it, it wasn't fun, man, trust no, me. It wasn't um, but it was a long five days. Um, but anyhow, there was a, a nurse on the staff there who actually told me a couple of things that were more important and powerful than any of the you know, official therapists or doctors told me Mm. like, you know what I mean? Like just like it just casual, friendly back and forth. And you take little gems of wisdom from them. So, yeah, I mean, like um, I had when I was, uh, see, for me, it was, I'm going to use this example, but when I was recovering from jumping off a, flipping roof um thank you for censoring that one yeah there was a point where i put two and two together i had no idea why i was in there and they wouldn't tell me because i was so fractured and broken and at one point i said oh i write songs i've written songs about trying to kill my and it it all connected um which makes a good little plot twist twist in the memoir anyway Um, But I spoke to my OT, occupational therapist, who was helping me with speaking and stuff. And I remember her saying to me, her her boyfriend had done something similar. And she said, you didn't want to die. You just wanted the pain to stop. And I've heard that since. And, you know, I remember that very clearly because it's... um, it's something to hold on to. Uh, and I think it's right, really. I think. Because, yeah, I didn't want to die. Life is precious. It's a cliche, but it's true, man. Mm-hmm. You only get one ticket. You got to take the ride. Make sure that that ride is a, a one that thrives, a one that moves you, that's positive and helps change the world in a productive way. Just uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you, which is, do you have any pieces of advice of your own for anybody who may be listening, any, anyone living with mental illness, any friends or family members, or anyone in the community? Um, I mean, I suppose this, I can, I can, I suppose uh, this is the only real piece of advice that I can give. If you do have artistic leanings, then for me, making art out of something so painful, so so horrible, has been has been it's therapeutic. Um, 
and you're able for me at least you're able to take something so 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 painful and so fucking so mad and so off the wall and you're able to give it a start a middle and an end and and I don't know whether this was particularly healthy. Well, no, I think it was. But you were able to go, okay, there we go. That's that's that depression. Um, and I've I've dealt with it, you know. So like Good Friday, the clinical depression concept album, available on all good streaming sites. Um, just just search David Park and then Good Friday. But that starts with a with a, a suicide attempt mm. and in it you go through you go through all the journey the, like the first half is very tough and it takes you from panic to despair you know for me at least when I was going through that I was very tense and very very stressed at the start and then I kind of just despair set in and then, you know, there's a song called Day at a Time where you're beginning to start recuperating yourself and you take a day at a time. Um, and, yeah, and there's a song about my piano and how how wonderful it was for me to be able to, to, to write songs about what I've been through. Um What's, what's the line? Um, so this is a line from Ernest, my song about my piano. My Ernest, he's called, he's a Hemingway piano. So I'm so original. Anyway, so I remember the first song I ever wrote. It was loosely based on a sad note, my suicide note. The lights were dim. I was singing to Morrissey. I must have looked quite grim because she said to me, You've made a ghost of yourself, just you and no one else. I remember the first song I ever wrote. It was loosely based on a sad note. And when I sang it, I let that ghost go. I exercised him on my piano. And it felt so good to let it out that that ghost became a cloud and drifted away. And Ernest was proud of me that day so um yeah so in good friday the last song called up where i went to thailand about a year after crawley the suicide attempt and i walked up this hill and i i ended up putting a note on a tree saying my name's dave i tried to kill myself a year ago and now i'm okay more or less so that song ends with um, it's good to be alive, you know. So, yeah, so my advice would be art. and But also, I don't know, if you're recovering and trying to put yourself back together, I mean, uh, mine is art, but... A good passion project doesn't hurt, I would say. Something to 
focus yourself on. I don't know what that might be. That might be helping people in the community or what, whatever. But just find what interests you and try and focus on things. My other advice would be exercise. For me, um, I'm a I'm a chubby jogger, but like you know, jogging has saved my life on more than one occasion. I'm I'm sure, and um, for me, uh, yeah, medication, and as I said, yeah, exercise has been jog go for a jog there we go awesome i think that's it i love it art and jogging art and jogging yeah fantastic coping strategies i couldn't agree with you more about the importance of having passion projects and having creative outlets and using them as therapeutic tools to work through complicated or painful events in your life. So um, thank you for sharing all of that with us. And David, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Did you have anything else you wanted to share? Uh, You have a lot of projects you work on. I'll certainly be including all of them in the episode description for our audience to check out. Any parting words? I guess what, um, obviously the exhibition is happening and Beckenham and Bethlehem Museum of the Mind until uh, July 22nd. But a lot of your listeners might be American. So, Uh but I would say I've done, so the text boards, the boards that run along around the exhibition about getting sectioned, falling madly in love, getting punched, you know. So I've turned those into a podcast. Um, Mm. and, And it works really well because they were only like a page long i wrote them with that kind of limitation it's a very swift nice listen i think and so the podcast is um uh, it's on uh, it's delusions a journey through sectioning by david parkin and it, it's on spotify uh but if you haven't got spotify uh just go to uh davidparkin.org and you can find out all about me but also the podcasts are on there as well awesome well thank you again and it's just been an absolute pleasure having you on it has and like i'm uh, hunter i think we i think it's a really good thing what you're doing so keep up the good work uh thank you so much and it wouldn't be possible without great people like you coming on to share their stories so it's a group effort and i really appreciate that thank you okay cheerio What an interesting guy and what an amazing initiative he's working on. I just absolutely love that his installation is actually being attended by hospital patients and that they're vibing with it. How cool is that? If you could design a luxury psychiatric ward of your own, what would it look like? I mean, I've been thinking about this too. I've always thought that the sterile, bland, uncomfortable environments of psych wards as we currently know them could 
definitely use an overhaul, to say the very least. If you want to check it out, David's exhibition is called David Parkin's Delusions of Grandeur, and it's currently showing at Bethlehem Museum of the Mind in Beckenham, England. The exhibition will be running until July 22nd, so be sure to check it out if you live out in those parts. David's concept album about depression, called Good Friday, is available on all major streaming sites, and be sure to check out David's full website for links to his books and other projects. His official website is davidparkin.org. Plus, he's on Twitter at Dave Parkin. As for me and the show, I'm on Twitter at HHKeegan. There's also, of course, the show account at Bipolar Recorder. Be sure to follow them for show updates and to keep tabs on everything that's going on. If you'd like to make a friendly contribution to keep the Bipolar Recorder podcast running, visit BipolarRecorder.com or HHKeegan.com and to check out my books and art available for sale. Sales of that merchandise help support the show. They help offset all of the different costs that go into working on these sorts of endeavors. And your support really does mean the world to me, so... Thank you so much for the people who have already checked those avenues out. And um, if you haven't, you know, consider just taking a look at those pages, hhkeegan.com or bipolarrecorder.com. And we've got some great books, got some uh, unique merchandise that I think people will find pretty cool. So anyhow, my name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been closing out the show lately with a special little message, and I think it holds true for today as well. I hope you have a wonderful day, evening, or night, wherever you are. Stay safe. Polar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.